chapter 7 of Luke. Chapter 7 of Luke. And I will apologize. I don't mean to make this into a Catholic Mass, but I accidentally allowed you guys to sit down too early. So if you would rise if you are able for the reading of God's Word this morning. We'll be diving and continuing on in our series in Luke. You're going to see this morning that this is going to be a text that should stay with you the rest of your lives. The things that Jesus says, the things that happen. Starting in verse 1, it states, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So last week, Pastor Blake took us through the portion of Christ's kingdom ethic portion uh, with a call and parable of obedience. If you recall, he took the to showcase that Christ asked of the people why. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Kyrios? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Those who hear my words and do them, I will show them. I will show them what they are like. They are like a house who has built their foundation upon the rock, and when the floods came, was able to stand. The other is like a person who built their house upon sand, Whatever foundation you can think of, it's shaking. So when the storms came, the flood came and swept the house away. So Jesus in this previous portion is ending his kingdom ethic on the point of, hey, everything I just told you, this is not a, a place of just simply saying, yeah, those are good doctrines I like. Those are good things. I amen to that. He said there is a necessity that whenever I speak, it stirs within you the ability to go and do. This kingdom is not one of just simply saying, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I believe in that. It's active. It's participatory. It is a revelation of that which is unseen within you placed before you to showcase the reality of the faith that is within you. This new kingdom ethic, which Pastor Blake talked about, is supposed to demonstrate the reality of God working in you as you work it out. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. For it is God that is at work in you both to will and to do. 
So last week we got a taste of that. We got to see the coming of the end of the kingdom ethic regarding obedience. But the question we'll be exploring today is how does a life of obedience have its foundation in Christ? Because the whole image that Pastor Blake talked about or the parable that was there was regarding foundation because both of them built a house. Storms came to both of them. One was able to stand, one was not. This is the difference between doing and being. This whole difference in reality is that both of the people built a house. So it's not in the house building. It's not simply just in the doing, but in the being. Let me give you an example. Let's say, for instance, I go and buy some flowers for my beautiful wife. And I bring them to her. And she opens the door and I hand her the flowers. And she goes, oh my, these are beautiful. Because I got them at my Lord's floral. Those of you who know. She goes, these are beautiful. What's the occasion? And I tell her, I was just simply doing my duty. Simply doing my job. Now I'm going to go sit in the recliner. Husband, check. <laughs> you see, that wouldn't come off very well to her, would it? The love is completely lost in that moment whenever I tell her this is what I'm supposed to do. So you can expect flowers once a month to demonstrate that I'm a good husband. That's my duty. No. Let's go back. I buy the flowers. Flowers floral. And I go, and I hand them to her. She says, oh, they're beautiful. What's the occasion? And I said, just because. Just because I love you. Just because you deserve it. Just because you're worthy of it. I was thinking about you. I was considering you. You were on my mind and on my heart, so I did this thing. Brownie.
So how do you determine whether or not your foundation that you can weather this storm? Faith. Faith. And we're going to define what faith is this morning. Because being a Christianese term, it kind of gets loaded with a bunch of different stuff. If you have enough of it, you can do this. Or if you have a little of it, you can do this. If you just have faith, this would happen. Faith, 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 faith. And you ask somebody, hey, what's faith? Five different people, you get five different answers. Well, you know, it's, you know, it's like this trust thing, you know, kind of hope. And, well, and you just use two other different words to describe the one word. So how does that work? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to be taking a look at what the scriptures have to say regarding faith. Both of them built houses, both experienced storms and floods, but why is one able to stand while the other come to ruin? It's faith. Faith is immovable when built upon a strong foundation. Faith is immovable when built upon a strong foundation. Before either house was built, before a single board was placed, each chose a foundation to which they would build. Faith is demonstrated in the selection of where the house would be built. Who in here has built a house somewhere in Alaska or a cabin or whatever? Whenever you went to it, did you consider what it was getting ready to be placed upon? Or did you just go willy-nilly into it? You're like, oh, that looks pretty good. Let's build it on that. Now, one of the craziest things i come to experience living in Alaska the past almost four years is the soil movement. That is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. The soil moves. They're like, oh, this happens all the time, Freddie. Like six inches or something like that in some places. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So the consideration before you build a cabin or a house is extensive here because of those movements and shifts and things. So before a single billboard was even applied to the house, the consideration of the foundation was first. That is to where faith is being placed. Your faith is saying, okay, hopefully this foundation will hold me and my family when this happens, that happens, storms come, earthquakes, whatever. So what is faith then? What is the core definition of faith according to the scriptures? Well, we're going to dive into it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Most famous, descriptive, most definitive scripture verse on faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Is that very clear to you? Kind of. It's kind of up there. You know, it's kind of something you kind of grasp at. Assurance of hope. Go back to chapter 11. Assurance of hope. The conviction of things unseen. This is one of those situations where the English form of the Greek doesn't do us justice. The Greek explains a lot more. The term assurance is the Greek word hypostasis, which is better translated as foundation or substance. The term assurance is hypostasis, which is better translated as foundation or substance. The Greek word of conviction is elemkos, which is translated proof or proving. So, let's reread it. Now, faith, immovable trust, is the foundation of things hoped for. 
the proof of things not seen. Does that give you a little bit more clarity on what faith is? The foundation of things hoped for. What is it that sinners hope for? Forgiveness? Mercy? Grace? Deliverance? Eternal life? So how is this proof? What is this proof? What is it that's going to be proven for things not seen? How is this that which is working within us going to be proof of things that we can't even see? How is that supposed to build us up in faith? And the bigger question is, is where do our, we put our faith and to whom do we put our faith? Well, the beautiful thing about Hebrews is it doesn't leave us hanging. After giving a long list of the Hall of Faith, which I highly recommend spending time to study, this is the culmination of it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so close, uh, closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, who is what? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ went before us as to provide for us, not only the proof necessary for our faith, but also the cornerstone and foundation to which our entire faith is actually built. Now does this verse actually make sense? Hebrews 11 talks about the necessity that the foundation of things hoped for, the founder of our entire faith, is Christ. That is where our foundation is. That's where we build our lives. That is the very necessity of proof that we are going to see within our faith that is going to build us up and allow us to build a house that is going to stand in this life. Christ is the founder and perfecter. He's not only the one who started the cornerstone, he's the one who demonstrated it. Who went before you and I and endured all the shame, endured everything, all temptation, to complete the work, and says, I now offer you this righteousness. And not only that, I'm going to help you through every season of your own life to get to glory. Because he went before. Christ went before us as to provide for us. We have been given assurance that all who build their house upon the rock, being Christ, will have an immovable trust in the things we hope for, which is forgiveness, mercy, grace, love, and eternal life through the gospel. And he is the proof, the proof of that faith while we are building. The houses, while there is no storm nor flood, would appear as they both standing strong. Is that not true? Did anybody see that video of the house get by the flood in Alaska, get swept away? While that flood was not there, the house probably looked pretty good. It probably stood for a very long time. But when the flood came, it took it off because the foundation was weak. So it's very easy to see a house that seems to be standing strong whenever there's no storms or floods. But when the storms and floods come, the foundations are no longer seen. Only the effects upon the houses are observed. Therefore, the proof of our faith in Christ is made assured by the ability to stand in the midst of storms and floods. Today, the centurion will seek proof of the foundation he chose to build his faith upon. So before we dive into our text, I want to explain what this text is not. I want to explain what this text is not before we go into what it actually is. 
This is not a formula for faith. This is not something you can turn to and be like, oh, if I just simply do it the way that this centurion does it, then I can get God to do what I want him to do. Or if I just demonstrate this particular thing or have faith at a, on a particular level or do this or that or the other, then God is going to do what I want him to do. This is not a how-to guide to get God to do our bidding. When it comes to the topics of faith, it must be understood that faith is built individually, it's personally built, and it's in regards to the relationship of Christ that you have in the gospel. This is not a one-all. This situation is not a how-to guide. This is not a seven-step sermon on how to marvel God. What the situation is, is a proof for the faith of the centurion. It is personal and it is specific. It is also a predestined situation following the ending of the kingdom ethic. Jesus just finished speaking before entering Capernaum. There will be moments in your life that are personal, specific, and predestined where that which is unseen will become seen in your faith as proof of the foundation you have in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I just said? There's going to be situations in your life that is going to be proof of the unseen, and it's going to be brought before your eyes. You're going to have the proof of your faith because you have been able to endure. You're going to have seasons in your life where storms and floods actually will come. And the proof of your faith is actually going to be found in your ability to continue standing regardless of it. Taking that which is unseen, faith, and place before you uh, to be seen as proof. The fact that you stand in the midst of the storms is proof that the foundation is strong. In this moment, centurion is moved by faith to action. And his faith is established by the proof of that faith in Christ. Christ really is who he says he is. Jesus is the founder of the foundation and the perfecter of the building of faith to which we run the race of this life. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But this faith all begins with hearing. With hearing. So what does a faith built on a solid foundation look like? Number one, it is moved by repentance. It is moved by repentance. And we find this in verses 6 and 7 of Luke. We find this in 6 and 7. And Jesus went with him. And he was not far from the house, and the centurion sent friends, saying, And Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Hey, Pastor Freddie, uh, you're kind of going out of order. Didn't the action come first, and then the uh, <coughs> repentance part? I have a question to ask. Had he had even acted if he had not first believed what he heard about Jesus? That's verse 3. He heard about Jesus, therefore he sent. The action he takes, which we will see in a bit, was on the basis of what he heard about Jesus first. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? He heard about it first. There would have been no action had he not first heard. There would be no action or even care or consideration for the servant had he not believed that Jesus could be exactly who he says he is. 
claims to be, testifies to be, is moved to repentance first. Because notice, as we're going to see in a moment, he sent, did he go himself? Did he go himself in all of his awesome armor and be like, look, you need to listen to me. I'm the centurion. You can do my bidding. Absolutely not. He sent elders, Jews, to go talk to Jesus. And this text right here, verses 6 and 7, demonstrate the reason why this was all done. He found himself unworthy to be even in front of Jesus. Now tell me a question, or tell me something. If a centurion, a Roman citizen, high regard, mind you, Romans at that time were in complete control over Israel, and a centurion had every right to have every authority he wanted to command Jesus to come to him. He could have stepped before Jesus all he wanted to. As a matter of fact, the Jews during that time, and we'll discuss it in a moment, during the Midrash, they were forbidden from even touching a, a, a tool that a Roman had touched. There needed to be such a separation that they despised the Romans. And the Romans looked at the Jews and called them dogs, pigs, swine, whatever else you want to call them. They did not like each other. And Romans saw themselves as very, very high of themselves. We see this in Pontius Pilate and, and Herod and everybody else in the New Testament. So he had every reason to just go to Jesus himself because he could have been puffed up. But no, he found himself unworthy the action by the centurion for his servant was based upon the faith he developed through the hearing. Through the hearing. And this is exactly the same measure by which we ourselves are built up in faith. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. How interesting is that, Sarah? For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? He's heralding Caruso, Greek word Caruso, preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our faith is absolutely begins. The catalyst of faith starts in hearing. Hearing precedes belief, and belief precedes action. The hall of faith is a full list of faith giants who first heard from God, and by faith they acted in testimony of their faith. Faith without works is dead, James 2.26. That is the real meaning behind the text in James. Faith is made alive in the actions, or the works, from hence those works emanate from faith. You want proof? Abraham and Isaac. Only son he had. God says, you need to sacrifice him. He could have been like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, bro. Like, I don't hear nothing. And what about a day? He could have did whatever he wanted. But his faith was showcased in the fact that he acted. Let's talk about another one. Noah. Had it rained before? So when the Lord says build a boat because it's going to come floods and rain, and Noah could have did whatever he wanted to. You know it took him almost 40 years to build the thing? His faith was demonstrated by the actions he took. His belief was based upon him hearing and then acting. We could talk about Gideon. Smallest tribe, smallest person. God says, you're going to lead my army in defeat. 
those deeds. He was a little weak-spied, and so he constantly poked at God. Oh, no, I don't know what this. Here's a police, here's a police. Can you prove it? Can you prove it? Can you prove it? And then eventually it got to the point where the Lord's anger waxed hot, this text says, against Gideon. But he believed, and he went and did. And he got to see the glory of God's work because he went and did based upon the faith that he had. And one of my favorites is Rahab. Rahab, being in Jericho, simply heard about the God of Israel, heard that spies of Israel show up, and she goes, whoa, whoa, I know what you guys are going to do, so if you promise you'll save me and my family, we'll hide you, because I know the, dis the destruction to come. She had simply just heard stories, and her faith was moved to action. And do you want to know what else is incredible? Rahab is in the line, the lineage of Jesus. Somebody in Jericho who simply heard stories and go, uh-oh, please save me from the destruction to come. And so she acted. Obedience, like Pastor Blake spoke on last week, is proof that faith resides within us. God speaks, we move and act and have our being. And one of the best quotations you're ever going to hear on this, as far as reading goes, on the articulation that we have proof of our faith whenever we do, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affection, where he answers the question, how is it that our desires change? What is the foundation by which our change happens that causes us to do what we do? To chase after righteousness, to chase after holiness. How does that work? What is the work within God that allows us to go and do? This is what he has to say. Nothing, in quote, nothing is more manifest, in fact, than that the things of religion take hold of men's souls, no further than they affect them. There are multitudes that often hear the word of God, and therein hear of those things that are infinitely great and important. And that most nearly concern them, and all that is heard seems to be wholly ineffectual upon them. And to make no alter, alteration in their disposition or behavior, and the reason is they are not affected with what they hear. There are many that often hear of the glorious perfections of God, his almighty power and boundless wisdom. His infinite majesty and that holiness of God by which he is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And cannot look on iniquity and the heavens are not pure in his sight. And of God's infinite goodness and mercy and hear of the great works of God's wisdom, power, and goodness. Wherein there appear the admirable manifestations of, this per of these perfections. They hear particularly of the unspeakable love of God in Christ. And of the things that Christ has done and suffered, and of the great things of another world, of eternal misery in bearing the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God, and of endless blessedness and glory in the presence of God, and the enjoyment of his dear love. They also hear of preemptory commands of God, and his gracious counsels and warnings, the sweet invitations of the gospel. I say, they often hear these things, and yet remain as they were before with no sensible alteration in them, either in heart or practice, because they are not affected with what they hear, and, will, and ever will be so till they are affected. I am bold to assert 
that there never was any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any person by anything of a religious nature that ever he heard, read, or saw that had not his affections moved, end quote. He realizes that there's a dichotomy on these things, that you can simply preach the wonderful good news, the eternal glories of God, the works of Christ, and there's two responses. People who are completely moved by it, affected by it, their change is imminent. They go and confess their sins, and they repent, and they turn from their wicked ways. They realize the need for God of his mercy and grace, and go to Christ. And there are those who could simply hear it and be like, oh, well, I guess I need to read my Bible more. I think that's what the message is. Or I just need to go do you know, good things, and that'll prove myself. Or they're not affected at all. They're like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Or they're like, man, this is all a fairy tale. So Jonathan Edwards asked the question, how is that? How is that possible? Faith is given by the Spirit. Because what is being delivered to you in the Word of God is spiritual things. We're going to see this, as a matter of fact. The centurion was moved by what he heard about Jesus. His affections had become so inclined to what he heard about Christ that his actions were taken out of the necessity of the evidence of his faith. The change of the affections in our being and in our person is not one of convincing thought, but by the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 points to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Oh man, so good. And when I came to you, brothers, this being Paul, talking to the church at Corinth, do not, uh, and when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now that particular Greek word meaning here means one uh, of of uh, convincing thought. It's the Greek word sophos, where we get the idea of somebody being a sage or sophisticated. He didn't come and try to convince, continuing on. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. Wonderful book by Soren Kierkegaard, by the way. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, sophos, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith, oh, here we go, now we're talking, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wise words of men are not able to determine the heart or soul. Only the Spirit is able to affect the soul to make repentance possible. If your faith is built upon clever words of men, sophos, then it will be clever words that will undo it. You cannot debate someone into faith. Faith is a spiritual fruit, not an intellectual one. You couldn't simply go to the centurion and be like, all right, let's debate on YouTube Friday, 3 p.m. I'm going to prove. I'm going to prove to you, and then you're going to believe. Has anybody ever seen a debate online or anything where the guy who loses the debate against a Christian was like, oh, I feel the faith now. I believe. No. Why is that? Because according to Paul, when you use sophos, you rob the power of the cross. You rob it. 
because you're trying to convince somebody. So hearing is not about convincing. Hearing turns faith. Simply hearing manifests faith. The Spirit's move upon the heart is where the affections go, not someone's convincing thought. Faith provided means affections motivated. Do you want to know why you turn away from sin? The Spirit. Because otherwise you would have just gone to destruction. The same way the house, or the builder of the house, continued building, not even considering the flood. When your affections or desires are changed from what they once were in their flesh to repentance, the Spirit of God is at work to demonstrate the building of faith in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul continues on. He writes again to the church of Corinth. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Repentance. The veil is removed. So what is it? What is the, what is the veil? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, that means those of us who can see by faith, behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is what? Spirit. The faith within you is a wonderful work of God. The foundation to which you stand is a wonderful work of God, not an intellectual one. So when those moments happen, when our faces become unveiled to the sin in our lives, Sin that bears the weight of repentance upon our souls. Do not quench the Holy Spirit, because that is the work of God, being bearing witness uh, to the faith that which is in, in you in Christ Jesus. It makes the unseen seen in your faith. So what does the centurion do? This is kind of the big question. This is kind of what we're going to center around, is the actions of this centurion and why he was defined as faith. Number two. Number two. He was moved to action. Move to action. Verses 3 through 5. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Notice something. Who is the one who is justifying the reason for Jesus to work based upon works? Jews were. He's worthy of you to heal him because he's done good works. Because he built a temple and he's high value to us. He's done good things. Therefore, Jesus, you got to do this stuff. They're trying to justify why Jesus needed to do something. As if to give an appeal of some merit for faith. It's not faith at all. You step up to Jesus and be like, you know what? I've been a good person. I tithed this week. I prayed seven times. You know, I read my Bible all year. So do me a do me a solid. Get me out of this financial situation, or fix my marriage because I earned it. That is not what the situation is here. The centurion had done nothing but harsh things. The centurion is not the one who has deserved anything. Roman centurion killed multiple Jews. 
oppressed the people, probably done some wicked things in his life. Now we see the change from faith to action in faith. The centurion's action for the sake of our servant was not only an action of faith, but an action for faith. Faith motivated the action of the centurion, but it was not for faith that will be built up in him when his faith will become sight. I think I read that wrong. Faith motivated the action of the centurion, but it was for faith that he will be built up within him when his faith will become sight. The reward of faith is proof of that faith which produces in us hope and trust in our faith. I know I said faith a million times, but I'm trying to get this tune through to you. That whenever you step out in action and faith and God responds and you're able to see as a veiled face have been unveiled to see the glories of God, you are completely built up in faith all the more. Whenever something happens and you pray and go, Lord, I need your help on this, or could you heal this person, and it happens, what happens to you? You're like, oh man, this prayer stuff actually works. Or maybe things don't go the way that you thought they would at first. Maybe some storms come your way, and you're like, man, I hate storms. I was going a particular direction, and a storm came, and now I'm way over here. But oh, will God reveal to you the glories of his wonderful work in your life by the steering of the ship. You won't be able to see it at first. But when you can look back and see the glory of God, oh, your faith will be built up. You know what's absolutely intriguing? Moses before he left with the Israelites from Mount Sinai to go into the wilderness, said, Lord, I'm not going anywhere unless you're with us. These are your people. You call me to this thing. So Moses is like, bro, this is a heavy burden you placed on me, and these are your people, not mine. So I'm not going anywhere. So what does he ask of God? He goes, let me see your glory. And what does the Lord do? How does he reveal his glory to Moses? He veils what? Where he's coming from. But he unveils what? Where he's been. The glory of God that builds faith is not trying to determine where God is coming from in your life. It's not where it's trying to determine, hey God, I don't understand what's going on. You need to explain this to me. He goes, no, no, no. That part's veiled. But behold my glory and the things that I've already done. The reason you can have faith is you've seen all the things that I've already done. I've delivered you from death. I've delivered this. I've done this in your life. I've changed your heart. You're now doing this. You were once this. That was the realization of Moses to Egypt. The faith that Moses needed to be able to go forward into the wilderness is not telling me where you're coming from, bro. The Lord goes, I delivered you from Egypt. You remember the Red Sea. I've provided, provided, provided. Have I not shown myself faithful to you? Have you not seen the glory of my passing, the very thing that I've already done? Is that not good enough to abide in? Do you have to know where I'm coming from? From that moment on, Moses is like, I'm in. That's right. You have delivered us. You have done all these wonderful works. Yes, you are faithful, and I'm able to trust you and move on. The reward of faith is proof of that faith that produces in us hope and trust in our faith. There's a story that was mentioned last week by Pastor Blake about a 
Syrian army commander by the name of Naaman. Now, for all of you who grew up in Sunday school and kind of grew up in the church, you guys may know the story of Naaman, but for those of you who don't, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the story of Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian army commander, an enemy of Israel. An enemy of Israel. He developed leprosy. So you think, oh man, that's just God working against the enemy. But here's something interesting that happens about Naaman. He hears from a slave girl, a Jewish slave girl, that there was one in Israel who could heal this leprosy. Naaman heard that it was possible to have his leprosy healed. So what did he do? He trucked it to Israel, and he found Elisha, the prophet. He said, uh, I've heard about you having the ability to heal leprosy. Can you do that? And Elisha gives him instructions on what to do. And what does Naaman do at first? I'm not doing that. The rivers where I come from are so much better. Why can't I just go dip in that? I thought you were just going to And I love that text because it says, I thought you would just wave your hand and I would be healed. So Naaman came with expectation on how this thing was going to happen. And then he got frustrated when it didn't happen. Instead, he went and listened. He was like, after grumbling some, oh my gosh, man, this is the worst. He abided. He went and did as Elisha told him, the Lord told him to do. And guess what happened to him? Can anybody tell me? His leprosy went away. How about that? And there's something absolutely intriguing about what he says afterwards. He believed in what he heard and went and did. And that reward and that doing and faith produced this in him. Listen to what he says. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, Elisha. This is name of returning to the man of God. He and all his company, and he stood before him and said, Behold, I know Yadav. The Hebrew word Yadav, we talked about it before. That there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your what? Your servant. He was the oppressor. He was the commander of the Syrian army. Do you want to know what else is very interesting about this story and how it connects with our text today? No one in Israel was healed from leprosy. Only Naaman. He confessed his faith after he abided by it. It was proof that solidified so that way he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of Israel is the only God. Because he would abide the commander, Centurion, heard about healing, hearing, and inquires about the healing, the same way as Naaman did, received healing for his servant, proof, and became established in his faith through confession. How intriguing that the Lord himself chose to use a situation in Israel just like Naaman's situation. Commander of the army in the army, heard about it, acted on it, was able to see the effect of it in confession. And did I mention that he was the only one healed in the land of Israel from leprosy? 
kind of makes sense when Jesus says in verse 9, which we'll get to in a moment. Seems rather convenient that today's text is about an enemy military leader hearing about Jesus, inquires about healing, receives confirmation of faith, and Jesus stated that, that there is no faith like this in all of Israel. Do you see what Jesus was getting at? That within Israel there wasn't faith like that. There wasn't trust like that. That simply upon hearing, belief happened. They needed proof, and we're going to see that as we go through Luke. You're going to see it over and over again. Prove that. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it as you say you are. And when he does, they're like, um, that's the works of the devil. Of course there was a faith in Israel like that. The centurion just simply heard about it. Rahab simply heard about it. Naaman simply heard about it. And they believed. And they acted. 1 Peter 3.9, those trials, there are going to be trials in your life that will provide proof of faith that will be the valuable treasure that you carry in this life that cannot be taken from you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now you a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These are the storms and floods. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through though uh, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation. Of your souls. Trials that happen in your life. Build on faith that will carry you through this life. <coughs> I'm going to tell you a story. And what I mean by faith. When God moves in your life. I'm talking about real things that people can't take from you. This is a convincing thought situation. There was one time. While Freddie Allen was just born. I was currently working at night at a pizza hut. <coughs> was a supervisor there delivering pizza. Loved that job. Man, that job was cake. It was a fun job to do. But at night, around 2 a.m., whenever we'd get off work, there was a bunch of leftover stuff from, like, the waiting orders of people who didn't make mistakes, whatever. So there was a bunch of food left over. And against company policy, I know, sinner, I went and took the food to the homeless around the city of Springfield, Missouri. And I would just do this every night. I'd find individuals, or I'd go out the commercial street and hand it out. But there was this one night, the Lord, I felt the Lord press upon me, hey, you need to go to this particular gas station off of National. And there's going to be a man there, his name could be Steve, and he's going to be wearing a green coat. You need to give the pasta to that guy. I was like, shh, this is crazy. That's very specific. I'm tired. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I must be having a hallucination. So I'm like, well, I'll find out. So guess what I did? I went to that gas station on National. And guess what I saw in the parking lot? 
jacket on. I'm like, no way, no way. So I went up to the guy and handed him his pasta. He goes, man, I've been out without food for two days. And I was just trying to find some way to get something to eat. And you just happened to come along. And I handed him this pasta. I'm like, golly. <coughs> I said, before I got in the car, I'm like, my mind's already blown because there was a guy in the green jacket. I stood there. I was like, by chance, what was your name? He goes, it's Steve. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a moment of faith that no one can ever take from me. They might be able to argue into the ground some idea of the hist historicity of Jesus, that the, re the resurrection didn't happen, this, that, and the other. And they may be sounding very convincing, but I tell you what, in that moment, there's nothing they can take. That cannot go away from me. That being built on a foundation of faith will carry me through, no matter what is being said. Even if AI is like, oh, aliens actually created God, you're all in a simulation. <laughs> nope, bro, sorry. Steve was there. <laughs> but that's not the only time it has happened. There's a story in Guatemala where we were out there on a missions trip and we were at a feeding center for the homeless there in Guatemala City. Really bad situation. And we went to this feeding center and they fed 75 people every single day. It was just a simple chicken soup thing and some tortillas. So we went to go help out. A super cool experience. Well, guess what happened? Over 150 people showed up, and there was like 15 of us, right? Like 15 of us there. That's 165 people. There was only enough food for 75. So you know what we did? We didn't know what else to do. We're like, we're just gonna pray. You know, maybe this is like a feed the 5,000 situation. Let's pray, and maybe this will happen. So we got together and prayed. We're like, Lord, carry this food through. Because there's a lot of hungry people here. Let us see your glory in this situation. So we never lifted the lid of the pot. We just withdraw from it. We didn't check it. We didn't need proof. We're just like, we're going with this. And we fed over 160 people. And there was enough left over for us. And there was still some in the pot. The tortillas never went empty. We just went our hand in, pulled it out. Never went empty. That can't be taken from me. There are situations in your life where God's going to show his glory to you that can never be taken from you. That's going to be worth its weight in gold. It's valuable treasure that will carry you through until heaven. That is what the point is of 1 Peter 1 there. You're going to have a faith so solidified and so valuable that it's going to carry you through your salvation all the way to the end. Something that can't be taken from you. It seems, oh, my apologies, I was about to ruin where I was going. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18, wonderful uh, uh, charge to us. So we do not lose heart. Guess what? I'm not going to lose heart when something happens. War in Israel, World War III, AI, China, whatever. I'm not going to lose heart because those situations can't be taken from me. I know that the Lord lives, and I know that the Lord stays, and I know that there's glory waiting on the other side that I will eternally spend with him. Because he has shown himself faithful by faith. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. If you just but ask. If you just do. Continuing on. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I love that phrase. Those gold pieces of faith. That's a lot of weight of glory. That will carry. Beyond all comparison. For uh, 
the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Faith, hope, love, mercy, grace. You just receive them. So the centurion was moved to action by faith and was met with proof of his faith. Number three, and I'm going to really start scooting. I didn't realize I'd gone this long. My apologies. Chapter, uh, verse 9, ch uh, chapter 7 of Luke, verse 9. Moved by God. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Immediately. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Matthew 14. This moment is not one that catches Jesus off guard. This is not a situation where Jesus is like, oh my, what's going on? This is not a moment of God being surprised that faith was present. As we learn, the Spirit produces faith in us to action. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, if you want to look into that. This moment is an illustration of the kingdom ethic Jesus just finished speaking about. The centurion heard, believed, and acted. Remember the phrase when Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me hears my words and does them. I will show you what he is like. And what does Jesus do in the very next portion of text? He shows what a man was like. The centurion is supposed to be the bad guy in what was heard, and yet he was the one who hears, comes to Jesus, and acts. The nature of the centurion was completely changed. Roman centurions would look down upon Jews. The Jews and the Romans would call each other dogs and swine. In Midrash teachings, Jews were not even allowed to touch the same item of the person of a Roman. It was forbidden for them to enter into the house of a Roman. They weren't allowed to enter even into a Roman house. They would be unclean. They would have to be ceremonial cleansed. And yet it was the centurion who was not worthy for Jesus to come into his house. How about that? He was humbled by Jesus. The centurion was the one is moved, who was moved. The centurion is the one who hears, comes, and acts. Israel had the law and the prophets. They had all of it. They were the promised people from which the Messiah would come. They are the recipients of covenants, and yet a Roman centurion simply hears about Jesus, believes, and then acts. He didn't have all the stuff. He wasn't given all the things. He couldn't carry around this idea that he was the son of Abraham. He just simply heard. That's faith. Israel had the law and the prophets. As we go through Luke, you will see how many times so many people in Israel needed proof to convince them of Jesus being the Messiah. A centurion simply hears and faith is built. Faith that moves God is simply that faith, uh, is simply faith that produces action simply by his word. Faith that moves God is simply faith that produces action simply by his word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and I not, do not do what I say? Lastly, I'm going to share a story about a king in Israel named King Asa. 2 Chronicles 15 and 16. We'll go through it very quickly. It's very relevant. Israel had been without God and turmoil was in the kingdom of Israel. This is 2 Chronicles 15 and 16, so let's take notes. God calls Israel to turn to him and peace uh, as well as protection would come upon them if they would but repent and abide. The king calls all of Judah to do that very thing, and they repent and abide. But when King Asa catches wind of an attack, 
He trusts not in the Lord, but in others. He heard the first time around that peace was going to be available to him. And they're like, oh yeah, let's go. Let's repent. Peace comes. The Lord is here. But whenever he hears that his own throne and his own kingdom could potentially be troubled, he turns away from faith and moves into trusting his own self. He does something quite interesting. He asks the king of Syria for help. Boy, Syria and Israel have some history, huh? He goes to the king and makes a covenant with him. Gives him gold from the temple. From the temple and says, hey, help me out, bro. God responds. And this is where we get the famous text. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support, foundation, to whose heart is blameless towards him. King Asa did not have a heart towards God. He had turned. He didn't listen anymore. He trusted in himself. And so the Lord said war would come back to him. And guess what it did? They had peace for a little bit. When things were good, he forgot the Lord. And things got rough again. But not only that, something very intriguing happens to King Asa that we're going to see here in a moment. His feet become diseased. A disease starts in his feet and begins working its way up his body and eventually kills him. Even in the midst of his affliction, the text says, even then he did not turn to the Lord, but turned to physicians. Now, this is not a text about don't go to your doctor. This is a text saying that even while affliction was upon his own foundation, he still wouldn't move. He still wouldn't move towards the Lord. He still trusted in his own stuff. He was building a house. And they would eventually kill him. From the lack of faith, his feet become afflicted and would eventually swallow him up in death. But there's another story about feet not being swallowed up in death because of faith. And that's where we're going to find ourselves in this morning. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, starting verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples, he being Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So can we stop for a second? Jesus did this, okay? Lord of glory, sovereign, told his disciples to get in the boat and sent them on their way. He walked around, mind you. He sent them into it. But what did he get sent into? And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And the boat by the time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The Lord sent his disciples into a storm, and he stood there over it. Continue on. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now, if you saw somebody walking on top of the Sea of Galilee uh, while a storm is happening, I would probably be a little terrified too, just to be honest. But, there's a point. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Here we go. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
Here comes Peter, bullheaded Peter, foot and mouth Peter. Here we go. He puts his foot in his mouth. And Peter answered him saying, Lord, if it is you, truth, command me to come out on the water. Wasn't he just terrified? And this is what Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Or why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? The one who calls you upon the water will secure you by faith to endure the storm and stand above it. The king also was consumed by the disease that came upon his foot because he did not turn by faith to the Lord. Peter called to be walked out upon the water. He stepped out of the boat in faith that he could do it. But whenever he immediately saw the storm and how bad it was, he began to doubt. Did the Lord... You're like, oh, too bad, Peter. You should have like, lately trusted me. You know, you put yourself in this situation. He didn't do that. He cried out, what? Lord, save me. And instead, immediately, what did Jesus do? There's going to be storms and floods in your life. Sorry, I didn't mean to knife hand all of you. <laughs> Military style. There's going to be storms and floods in your life. That he predestines for you to walk in them. But he's going to call you out upon that water. And know for darn sure, by faith in him to go and abide in him, he's not going to let you be consumed by it. <coughs> I find it kind of interesting that the reality of faith is being built on the word assurance, the foundation of things hoped for. The conviction or proof. Your ability to stand above the water during the storm <coughs> is your proof that causes the assurance, that causes the foundation. Does that make sense? Faith is being built up in you to become stronger and stronger. And we find the place we put our faith in Christ who is both the founder and the perfecter of it. So here's a few takeaways quickly. So how do I stand upon the waters in Christ? That's the question then, Freddie. Cool stories, bro. How do I stand upon the waters? How is it do I step out of the boat when the storms are really bad? Number one, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. This is the assurance of your forgiveness. If you don't have this thing set, everything else in your life is going to be lost. If you don't have the reality that the gospel actually is what it is, and that Christ is who he says he is, then you're not going to be able to even get off the shore. You need to have this assurance first. We find this assurance, and James, you have to be grounded. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14 or 15. You have to be grounded in the reality of the gospel first. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now I remind you, brothers, this is Paul again, right, to the church of Corinth, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, in which you are being saved. 
If you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believe in vain. This gospel not only secures you from your faith in the past, it secures you now and it will secure you until the day of glory. You have to get this right first. Otherwise, everything else is going to be hard for you. That this gospel really is what it is. That you do have grace and mercy and forgiveness in him. And that you really are washed clean. And he does love you and he calls you his own. You are adopted as sons and daughters. You have to get that right first before you can act. Number two, faith and action. This is the assurance of meaning. This is the assurance of meaning. That whenever you act in faith, that there's a purpose and a meaning behind it. That it's not useless. You have to be grounded to endure the storms and trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Well, this is what James writes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what's interesting about the word steadfastness? It's got the same root word as assurance. You know what the Greek word for steadfastness is? Hippomanes. What's the word for assurance? Hypostasis. That means abiding. Steadfast means abiding. It means to continue in. Trials produce steadfastness, hippomani, your ability to abide, in the faith, in our faith of assurance, hypostasis. The more that you are pressed, the more that you are tried, the more that your faith is actually tested, the stronger and stronger it becomes. So that way you know when something comes your way, you can hit it head on. You can run the race because you know the Lord's got you. So the next time you're called into a storm, you're like, good. I'm going to be able to see his glory in the midst of this. The more proof in the testing of our faith, the more immovable we become in our foundation. Number three, faith moved by God. Faith moved by God. This is the assurance of purpose. That it's not willy-nilly that the storms come. That God is caught off guard when troubles come your way or trials come your way. That he isn't like, oh man, there's some rough stuff going on down there. That AI is getting out of hand. Wish I could do something about that. This war in Israel is getting out of hand. Wish I could do something about that. You have to be grounded in the reality that God is at work in you and that proof. And uh, in, in that he's at work in you so that it is proof for your faith to build faith. This comes from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not as only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to what? To will... And to work for his good pleasure. Not only is that work in you to change your nature, to get you to get into the boat, but he is also at work in you as you've asked to be called out into the storm. He's at work both to will and to do. So it doesn't mean it's robbed of its purpose. Because of the work of Christ, we are able to move and produce good work too. Since Christ has perfected, dem perfectly demonstrated the manner of our being, we need to cast anything aside that bears upon us so that we may run the race of this life in faith. Hebrews 12 again. Hebrews 12 again. We brought it around full circle. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by a so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What boats of Europe have you been called to? What storms have you been called to? Where is it you're supposed to look? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and have seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what bears upon you that prevents you from running this morning? What storms are you experiencing this morning where you've been called out of the boat? And the waves are kind of hard. The wind is kind of loud. Where do you place your faith this morning? What is your foundation? And do you have proof of gold that you can carry with you every day of your life? Because I guarantee you it's going to be that which carries you through and it's going to be good for you. In closing, the words of our closing song this morning. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours and you are mine. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, You've never failed, and you won't start now. So let us have full assurance of faith as Christ is the proof, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father. You have set us upon a rock, which is Christ, and no matter what storm may come our way, we can stand assured, having been given the foundation